Over the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to address several beliefs that we Christians hold and, and kind of ask the question from the point of view of the, the, the non-Christian culture around us. Why do we believe that? Why do we believe that? And so, last week we talked about why do we believe Jesus is Lord. And this week we're going to talk about why do we believe God is good. Why do we believe that? The first reason for all of these beliefs is uh, that the Word of God has planted faith in our hearts. I mean, that's just the way it is. First, all Christian faith comes from what the Word of God plants in our hearts. Why do we believe Jesus is Lord? It's because the Word of God has created faith in us. Why do we believe God is good? It's because the Word of God has created faith in us. That is not just a Christian slogan. That is actually a profound idea. God is so huge, He is beyond us, unless He activates us to be able to know about Him. We're not going to know about Him. It is His Word to which you and I, as His creation, we respond. And so, Paul is saying something tremendously profound when he says, Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. All of our faith starts there. But as Christians, we need to try and give answers when people ask us. And, and, and they say, well, you believe that, but, but why does it make sense to believe that? And there are so many reasons why it does. Even in its fallen condition, the world displays the goodness of God. You and I, as Christians, we are not called to be Pollyanna. We are not called to deny that the world is in a fallen state. We are not called to pretend that there isn't crime and starvation and famine and earthquake and war and and terrible things going on in this world. We are not called to deny that. Our story includes that. But even within its fallen state, the world displays the goodness of of God. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and their starry host by the breath of His mouth. I, I so appreciated the songs that Ethan led for us this morning because they all, uh, or many of them, orbited around that set of ideas from the Bible. God, if, if there's anything good in the world... If there's anything that you're enjoying in the world, anything, big or little, if there's anything that you're enjoying, that's from God. God is the source of the goodness that's in the world. And that's probably the foundational reason why we take and understand God to be good. I mean, the world just seems so abundantly above what we would need to merely exist. It seems so abundantly full of goodness beyond what is necessary for our mere survival. It seems as if even with the occasional evil that's in it, uh, it is filled, filled, filled with goodness. There's so many ways to illustrate this. This morning, I don't know if you felt it, I felt it, uh, big earthquake. Big earthquake. Did you guys feel that? Okay, good. I wasn't hallucinating. All right, fine. Earthquake. We have a word for earthquake. What's the opposite of earthquake? 
Why don't we have a word for that? The earth's not shaking. You know, I mean, it's not that we can't talk about it. It's just we never need to. You know, you don't you're, you never need to have that conversation with someone. You know, this morning at 567, the earth didn't shake. Yeah, it, it rarely shakes. I mean, that's what we take for granted. We don't have to invent vocabulary for what's unusual, what's surprising to us, like the earth we depend on all the time suddenly getting all quivery. Now that we need words for. And that's my point. Uh, we, those things, the instability of the earth, tornadoes, hurricanes, even toothaches, these are all things that are so unusual, they go against what we take for granted. What is it exactly we're taking for granted in all those cases? The overwhelming, consistent, faithful goodness of the world that God made. And that's just, that's just the way it is. And if we're alive to that, if we're intellectually alert to that, it's just obvious to us that, that God, who is the Creator, is a good Creator. Even through the fallen shadows of sin, that goodness shines through. There are people, there have been philosophers, Schopenhauer and others, who have said, no, the world is full of misery. The world is terrible. It's so full of pain. It's so full of anguish. Any sensible person would realize it's not worth living. Schopenhauer didn't believe that. And no one really has believed it. I mean, that's a way... I, I view those kind of statements of ways of expressing the emotion of pain at the badness that's in the world, which is fine. You should express that emotionally. But if he... If, if, if philosophers are actually trying to make a logical claim that the world is so full of suffering that it's, life is not worth living, it just doesn't even make any logical sense. Because the, what you should do at that point is to say, it is right and just for me to kill as many humans and animals as I can get my hands on. Because I am saving them the misery of existence. And not even Schopenhauer took that viewpoint, nor does anyone else. Because we know that that's not true. We know that even with the occasional bouts of pain, and some of which is very severe and awful, overall, the world is good. It's filled with goodness. God is good because the world He created is good. I love the ending of the book of Job. Job and his friends are presented as the wisest people on earth. Uh, they're, they're so wise, most of us wouldn't be allowed into the circle of their conversation. They've earned their stripes as wise men. And they argue about this question, why does God let evil happen? Why does He let bad things happen? And they go back and forth. It goes on for almost 40 chapters. And nobody can convince each other of a solution to this. And at the very end of the book, God shows up. Job's been wanting God to show up, he says. I wish God would come and answer my questions. And so God, at the end of the book of Job, He does show up. And He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. Job's been saying, I, if God would show up, I would ask Him some questions. And God says, I will question you. 
and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And it goes on for about two chapters of God asking Job questions that Job, wise man that he is, has no answer to. If God showed up today, he would ask us a different set of questions, but it would be just as easy for him to show us our ignorance and our inability to fathom the creation that he has made. And the point is not, hey, I'm smarter than you, Job. The point is for Job to understand who he's talking about. He's not talking about some interloper who happens to have a lot of power, not a Zeus, not a Marduk, not a Thor, one of those gods that human beings imagine. He's talking about his creator, the creator of the whole world and everything in it. And Job is trying as hard as he can to understand the mind of the creator who created his mind. And we realize that's not going to work, Job. And that eventually, after a few chapters, that's what Job concludes. He says, chapter 42, And Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job has come to recognize that the being he's talking about when he says that word God is a being of mind-breaking greatness and glory and goodness. And that his mind, though he is a very wise man by human standards, his mind has not even begun to capture what God actually is. And so the questions he is asking, he was not even in a position to frame properly because he didn't understand. The point I want to make here is this. We have no grounds, we have no logical grounds to jump from I want the world to be different to if God were really good, he would make the world the way I want it. We're always going to want the world to be different. It's a fallen world. It should be different. Objectively, there are things wrong with this world. That's part of the Christian story is that the world is fallen. But we have no grounds to jump from, I want the world to be different, to, if God were really good, he would make the world the way I want it. We have no logical grounds to make that jump. Because in order to make that jump, that this is what I want to, if God really loved me or if God were really good, he would do this, we would have to know some things that we just can't know and, and in some cases know to be false. One, we would have to know that what we want is really good is really good. How much of what you want is really good? So we already know that oftentimes when I want something, 
It's not good. Oftentimes, I look back at the things that I wanted. At the time, I couldn't think of any reason why it wasn't a good thing. But when I look back, I go, oh, my goodness, I was so wrong. I so didn't understand. I so didn't get it. I did not realize. And so we know that we are, we're a terrible judge of what's good, first of all. We're fallen ourselves. We're twisted by sin ourselves. And our perspective is so limited. And second, in order to say, to move from, well, I want the world to be this way, I want it to be different, to if God really loved me or if God was really good, he would make it be this way. We would have to know that God has no good reasons for doing it the way he's doing it. How big is your mind? You may be the smartest human being on earth, but if you measure yourself by God, your mind is tiny. It is like the mind of a gnat trying to understand one of our minds, a human mind. In fact, that's not even a good analogy because God's wisdom is infinite, unlimited. We will never, 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 never get to the bottom of who God is and what his plan is. And that's what Job came to realize when he says, I, I realize I have been darkening words without understanding. You're exactly right when you make that accusation against me. I didn't know what I was talking about because I'm trying to talk about you, God. And you are beyond, beyond, beyond my ability to judge you. And that leads to another point. And I think it's an important one. If we think, if human beings think we are clever enough to try to understand God's motives, shouldn't we try just a little to understand our own? If we think, as we sometimes do, or at least in some conversations, uh, if people talk as if they are, if we think we are clever enough to try to understand God's motives, shouldn't we try just a little to understand our own. The people who actually say, I think God hates me. I think God is evil. To allow this or that or the other thing to happen, God is just an uncaring, mean, unloving being. If I think I'm smart enough to get into God's psychology, the psychology of an infinitely wise being, if I really think that, shouldn't I spare at least the thought questioning whether I am all I'm cracking myself up to be? And actually, once we start asking that question, we begin to realize our motives are far from pure very often. Psalms 94 is a good illustration of this. Verse 9, they slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say the Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people, you fools. When will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the eye, the ear, not hear, or he who formed the eye, not see. God is not just some extra powerful being out there. God is the one who made you and everything about you. God is your creator. And, and oftentimes, the motives we have for not wanting God or, or, or imagining that God is somehow less than perfectly good 
our motives to set ourselves free. When we were in Vienna this last summer, Yodi and I, uh, we saw a, a van or a bus going down the street. I actually, I was taken by the sign it had on its side, so I, I'm not sure if it was a van or a bus, but it said, God probably doesn't exist. So relax and enjoy life. You can't state it more baldly than that. Why is it that people want to talk themselves into saying there is no God, or if there is a God, He's evil and He doesn't have our best interest at heart, or He's uncaring and unconcerned? Why do people want to say that? It's because that would somehow set us free, we believe, to, to do what we want. There's a YouTube video out here. It's actually from a, from a guy that I really like. He's excellent at, at describing certain facts in science. He, he has the best description of what a semiconductor is that I've ever seen. It was brilliant. He dressed up like a silicon atom. It was cute. But, but one of his videos is just an outright sermon in praise of nihilism, of saying there is no God, there is no life after death, and so there's no purpose to human life. Nothing means anything. There's no, everything is random ultimately. Everything is chaotic ultimately. And then he ended his sermon with kind of an invitation. He said, and don't you see that that makes you free to do what you want? Stop being afraid and do what you want to do. That was his, that was his pitch, basically. And that's what we want in our heart of hearts. We want that. It's not that we really, though, want the full implications of that worldview. Because I want gravity to keep working tomorrow. I want the sun to keep shining tomorrow. When someone does something evil to me, I want them to be judged for that. It's just that I want those things, which are all God things, that's, that's what would happen in a God universe. But when it comes to what I want to do, I want to kind of convince myself there is no God, or if there is a God, He's uncaring, or He's not going to bother me. I want what I can't possibly have. Either there's a God or there's not. If there is no God then literally nothing makes sense. Even enjoying life makes no sense. Everything collapses into that. There's no implications from the conclusion that everything is meaningless. Either there is a God or there isn't. And if there is a God, yes, He will hold other people accountable when they do wrong, because He will hold you accountable when you do wrong. And, and we can't have our cake and eat it too on that particular question. God is good. He's profoundly good. And as we come to understand what's going on in our own hearts, we realize the resistance we have to the goodness of God is not always very pure. There's also a minor problem here. I'm just going to throw out a little logic. Psalms 94, verse 9, that last little phrase of what we just read. Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? If you literally said there is a God, but he's uncaring, he's evil, he's unconcerned, he's unloving, or whatever. 
If you literally said that, I believe that would be self-contradictory. It's actually self-refuting. If you say, the one who created my brain is evil. That implies nothing my brain tells me can be trusted. You see why? If, if you literally think God's the creator and he made my brain, just like he made my eye, he made my ear, he made my brain, how could you trust anything that your brain thinks? Including whatever reasons you've told yourself you have for deciding that God's uncaring or God is evil or God is unmoved or, or any of those other things. If God were really unconcerned, if he were not a wise creator, then the brain you're using to think with is completely and thoroughly compromised. And everything it tells you is untrustworthy. Well, those are minor points to make. I think we can make them. It depends on the conversation. These are points that you make to someone who is, is asking these questions or is flippantly dismissing the idea of God. These are certainly not points that you would make to someone who's in the middle of suffering in this fallen world, who is suffering from the grief of illness or death. You don't make these kind of points in that context. You go and you sympathize and you be present with them, but you don't try to, to give them these logical arguments. That would, be, that would be heartless as well as counterproductive. But here's something you can say even to someone who is suffering. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is our final proof not just of the goodness of God, but of His stop-at-nothing love for us. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is our final proof, not just of the goodness of God, but of His stop-at-nothing love for us. John 4, 9. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. God showed His love among us. Sometimes when Christians are feeling flippant, I've done this, I need to repent. Talk about some passage in the Old Testament and we'll say, well, that was before God became a Christian. As if somehow when God came in the flesh of Jesus Christ, that that was the pinnacle of God's love. Now, Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of what you and I can comprehend of God's love. Don't get me wrong. It is the most perfect showing that you and I in our flesh are capable of is for God to shrink himself down to empty himself so that he could actually be in human form. But it is God, this incredible infinite love of his, being miniaturized down to a form that you and I could just begin to wrap our minds around. That's what Jesus is. Our worry, I think our worry is when we go through severe pains, and we, and we do in this life, loved ones of ours die. We pray for them and they die. Or, or terrible events take place in the world and, 
and, and awful things take place and, 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 and we suffer. And we wonder, does God even care? God's up there in heaven. He's got a golden throne. People are singing His praises. Does He even care? And the Christian answer is that God cares more than you care about your suffering. God cares so much that He emptied Himself to take on the form of a human being. Jesus Christ, who lived so that we would know how to live, who died so that we would know the love of God to call us back to Him, and who was raised from the dead so that we would know that we will ultimately be with God forever. Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof of the goodness of God and not just His goodness, of His stop-at-nothing love for each one of us. If you need to respond to the goodness of God, to the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ, to become a follower of Jesus Christ by taking His name in baptism, to begin to walk the new life if you've never taken that step, or if you need prayers or something else the church can do for you, then we invite you to come as we stand and are led in song.